I was recently again in Burma practicing with one of our teachers, Sayadaw Upandita, and realizing even before I went to Burma that it is very necessary for me, for all of us, to on subtler and subtler levels realize the purification of the mind. When I was there, I realized again for the umpteenth time, countless number of times having realized this actually, how powerful the habit patterns of the mind are. The patterns that are based in greed, the various forms of that, subtle but powerful they can be. Hatred, aversion, all the different forms of that one, and delusion, the various ways that we get caught up, confused in life, not knowing really who we are, what's going on. The feeling of a deeper sense of urgency to be liberated from the prison of that came even before I went, but more deeply as I saw how these uh, veils of ignorance can trap one, can feel can make one feel like there must be much more to life than just surviving, than even being in this field of life that offers the Dharma, which is a very precious way of living life, but there must be much more to life than that. Feeling a sense of um, urgency to be able to live my life more day by day, more moment to moment, free, more completely free of any form of greed, hatred, and delusion. And then also being of this age where, you know, I'm, I'm really not that old, but I'm not young either, uh, being 56, 57, just seeing a lot of people around me um, die and wanting to be able to spend the last moments of my life free of confusion. More importantly, this last time that I was in Burma, there was a deeper realization of how powerful mindfulness is. The, the ability for mindfulness to be with, come face to face with, any moment of ignorance, any moment of greed or hatred, and just completely dissolve it. To see the power of that, it just gave uh, deeper confidence in, in the ability to totally be free. That with practice, it's totally ex- possible to experience the present moment. Um, in a way where we feel that we can be a blessing in this life, that no part of my or anyone's uh, behavior or speech or even thoughts come to harm oneself or another. So maybe I'm not fully there yet, but realizing and seeing the the great power of mindfulness to be able to do this, just... um, boosted a lot of my spiritual morale. And so I wanted to speak about mindfulness tonight because 
this is what we're doing. This is our path of practice. This is the basis, the foundation for our freedom, for our happiness. And I'm not saying this from a place of reading it from a book or hearing from our teachers and then um, relaying it to you. I'm truly saying it from a place of realizing the power of mindfulness and seeing how it can dissolve the veils of ignorance. The Buddha made this promise about the seven benefits of the power of satipatthana, of sati or mindfulness, in the sutta called the Satipatthana Sutta. So I just want to open the Dharma talk this evening with the Buddha's words. He said, bhikkhus, and bhikkhus means women and men practicing as we are. Women and men of the robes, women and men uh, in the lay life. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of mind, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true and noble way, for the realization of Nibbana. So mindfulness, our path of practice, for many of us who are practicing for a while to no matter how long, even for just a few months, a year, some of us 20 years, 30 years, we've come to see that it truly is the foundation of peace, of uh, happiness in our lives. The cause and condition for immediate and far-reaching benefits for all of us. When we all first come to retreat, myself included, and no matter how long I've been practicing, when I'm away for a period of time from intensive practice, when I go to retreat, I just see how unruly the mind is when you're not practicing every day. And even if you are practicing every day, if your life is busy and you come down to retreat and you're silent and still, in that silence and stillness, we see a lot going on that's sort of just out of our control. The mind, we say, just be here with the breath, and, you know, after a half a breath, it's gone. It's having tea or wanting to have tea or wanting to snuggle under the warm covers. It's challenging to actually stay present. I'm sure all of you know that. You can tell me your own stories Most of us are not living in the present moment. We're living in the past, reviving old memories, going over and over them, thinking about the future, um, which we don't even know will happen, fantasizing, because it can be much easier to do that than to stay in the present moment. Somehow, we're just not trained to be in the present moment. That's why we call this a training We're often lost in the world of thoughts. I I call it the kingdom of thinking. You know, that's where we get lost in. It's so wonderful because um, it just isn't happening. (laughs) We're we're in a place that, uh, that can be, but it isn't happening. 
Sometimes we're lost in good thoughts of helping others. And yeah, this is wonderful, but the fact is we're lost in thoughts. How many times recently my mother came to spend some time with us, with Stephen and I, over um, the summertime, and there were times when I was lost in thinking about a Dharma talk with my mom sitting right there in front of me, 88 years old, and many times wondering how long will she be with me more, and mind is off thinking about what I'm going to make in the next Dharma, what I'm going to write in the next Dharma talk. And what I really would like to be is more present. And I know I'm much more present with myself and with others than I was 20 years ago, and there's still room for improvement. So the immediate benefit is to be able to be with ourselves, with others, with more fullness of mind, mindfulness, just being with the present moment. Those, all those moments that I try to make a Dharma talk while sitting with my mother amounted to absolutely nothing. Where did all those thoughts go? It would have been really nice to just be with her and, and receive the gaze from her eyes or listen to her talking about bingo. You know, that would have been a wonderful act of generosity for her, for me. How many times have you, um, in your time of meditating, maybe you can remember moments here or in another retreat, or maybe not even in retreat, just when you're in your simple life or complex life, and you're just with a moment of walking, or just a moment when you've waken up in the morning and you've made some coffee and just been with smelling. That's all that's happening, just smelling. Or just bringing the teacup to your mouth and just tasting. Or just getting into bed and just pulling back the covers. And knowing how refreshing and how totally a feeling of purity that is when there are no layers of other things there, grieving about the past, worrying about the future, just not being present with what's really happening. So the immediate benefit is that it makes us more awake to the present moment, to this very present moment. The Buddha um, was once stopped on his uh, one of his walks going into a village and he was asked by someone uh, are you uh, are you a deva like a celestial being and the buddha said no and uh, then this person asked uh, are you um, are you something else like a wise person or a saint or uh, and he said no and went on to ask him questions about well, who are you? You have this incredible aura about you, this presence, etc. And the Buddha simply answered, I am awake. I am awake. And in essence, the essence of what Buddha nature is, is to be awake. To be awake to what? To be awake to the present moment. So how much, if we're honest with ourselves, how much are we doing that, really? 
there were moments um, and many moments just I recently remember because I just came out of retreat and you're in retreat so you'll touch base with this in your own hearts many moments when um, I could just wake up in the morning and listen to a bird sing free and clear of anything else and have that be so pristine so open to those moments when you can that are here because that's the immediate benefit of mindfulness, the immediate benefit of just being awake to your present moment and really feel how pristine that is, just the purity of one's heart when you're experiencing that. One time I asked Munindraji, one of our teachers who recently passed away, what is a saint in, in the Buddhist kind of cosmology? What is a saint? What does that mean? And Manindra said, a saint is someone who knows when he is walking, when he is walking. Only that. When she is hearing, just knows that. Knowing, hearing. Hearing is happening. When tasting, only tasting is happening. So each moment is known very, very pristinely with nothing else added. So why is it so important to be awake to the present moment? I mean, a lot of us, we hear this. I mean, in Las Vegas, there's that sign, you must be present to win. You know, why is it so important to be present? You hear a lot about this in various spiritual paths, um, Buddhist and non-Buddhist spiritual paths. When you just think of it in a direct way, It's where everything's happening. It's really where everything is happening, vividly, directly, intimately. And yet we've we've often just missed it. Or we're thinking about the, the distant past or the distant or near future even. We're just not here for the present moment. If you want to know the truth of life, the truth can only be revealed in the present moment. If you know the truth from some past, it's not direct. Or from what may be in the future, it may not be really true. Or hearing it from someone else, it's secondhand knowledge. Even if you hear it from a great master, it's still secondhand knowledge. Manindra used to always say, the Buddha took care of his problem. I'm taking care of mine. You take care of yours. We, we, we just can't depend on the truth as experienced from other persons. We need to rely on the truth as it is experienced to us. And the only place it can be experienced is in the present moment. So if you want to know the truth, know the present moment. This is also where the veils of ignorance are pierced in the present moment. We may think about it and have a lot of intellectual knowledge which is good about ignorance and how to dispel ignorance. But it can't be dispelled truly in a genuine way unless it's from knowing the present moment 
and piercing the present moment. This is where the deepest, most liberating truths of life are revealed, which we'll talk more of later in the retreat, the liberating truths of anicca, or impermanence, of anatta, or the empty quality of self, or dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of each moment, in that no moment can give us truly permanent, lasting happiness, because it's fleeting. So we come to know these truths in a deep, liberating way only by being with the present moment. Otherwise, it's not genuine. It doesn't pierce our hearts in the same way. With these new understandings, when they open to us, when they blossom in our own hearts, we begin to realign our living in the world. We begin to realign the way we we think of life, we see life, the way we respond to life. For example, recently in October, one of our dear teachers, Manindra, that many of you know, and for many of us, he's been our one of our teachers, he passed away. And um, <clears throat> of course, in retreat, there were many moments of remembering him. And um, the truth of impermanence, of anicca, always came. And that was so much stronger than the grief over his death. So truly overcoming grief and lamentation, seeing the, the promise of the Buddha, is, is true. It's true. Of course there's sadness and grief, but the understanding of anicca and of selflessness is much stronger than that. So we begin to realign our living in the world. With mindfulness, we live in a way that can easily let go of what doesn't lead to happiness, can easily let go of what we know is harming us, inwardly harming us or harming others. So we see that more clearly. Our thoughts, our behavior, our speech, when we see that this is not leading to any place good, we can, before it comes out, before it's acted on, um, before we get identified with it, even in our own minds, we have the possibility of letting go through mindfulness. Also through mindfulness, we know what cultivates peace and happiness. So we come here and we know it's hard. We sit here with um, cultivating metta. It isn't easy. It sounds so wonderful, you know, when you read the advertisement for a retreat. We'll be doing metta every afternoon, and oh, we're just going to be sitting here pervading metta to all of our family, to all of the world, and we sit here and the mind is just going off, thinking in habitual ways, and uh, we say, may you be happy, and the next thing is, oh, I'm so bored with this sentence, you know, <laughs> can I do something else, please, or is there any other way? And we can't even be with that. But when we know that the cultivation of that over and over again, by just staying 
with, okay, I'm just going to be with this phrase because maybe it's connecting more and more deeply to a deep intention of offering goodwill. May you be happy. We come back to the next cultivation of metta. May you be healthy and strong. And each time we come back, we say, I'm going to begin again with this because I'm cultivating a habit pattern that is beneficial to myself and to others. So it takes effort, but we, we do it because we know with mindfulness that it leads to happiness, it leads to peace. If there's one more person in the world that can make it happen, it's not going to be the other one that we want to change. It's going to be ourselves that we're changing. And then when we change ourselves, we affect others. We affect our little or big world around us. So with those two as a basis, easily letting go of what leads to harm, more easily cultivating what benefits others, with those two as a basis, we can then begin to cultivate wisdom. In this last uh, period and time of Dharma talks that our own teacher, our other teacher, Sayada Upandita, gave, he made the point over and over and over again that unless you understand with mindfulness when to let go of what leads to harm and what to cultivate and to cultivate what benefits others, like loving kindness, generosity, compassion, equanimity, to cultivate that. Unless you do those two things, concentration and wisdom cannot be developed. You need the basis of those two things. And so this is the near uh, benefit of mindfulness and and far-reaching also. But we see that very, um, very closely. As we come to our sitting cushion with less of a mind that is habitually kind of doing rah, rah, rah. That was one of my notes. You know, I would complain about this yogi or that yogi in the mind and then just do it. Oh, well, that's my nyat, nyat, nyat mind. And okay, let that go. And so as we come to see what leads to harm and we come to see what benefits, then we can come to the sitting cushion with a mind that's more at ease, with less of that. I truly came to feel um, maybe in a, in a bigger way than most times just how much more clear the mind is this time than, than before. That the old issues that I had when I practiced two years ago with Sayada Upandita, they were gone. And it was wonderful to see that, that, you know, there were these little things that came up to niggle the mind, but they weren't really big issues. Well, maybe they're yet to come again, but I was happy that they weren't there this time. But there's a possibility for more and more of that freedom when we have the ease of a clear mind, a clear conscience, a mind that's not habitually going to any form of greed or or pushing away, aversion. In the West, we call this practice vipassana. 
This is okay. It means insight into the true nature of phenomena. So sometimes, you know, another word for this is insight practice. And actually, in, in Burma, the place where many of us have cultivated our practice through this lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw was Upandita's teacher and also uh, Manindra's teacher, they use the Pali word Satipatthana. And in fact, uh, Upandita has corrected me and to use the word Satipatthana instead, because that word Satipatthana has very deep meaning. And when we come to know the word and what that means, I think we come to know what mindfulness means more completely, more fully, more deeply. So as a way of um, understanding mindfulness, I'd like to, for us to understand what satipatthana means more. Because that word fully reveals the, this practice that we're doing, satipatthana. So the practice that we're doing is satipatthana vipassana bhavana. So vipassana means insight into the true nature of phenomena, and bhavana means the cultivation of. So what does satipatthana mean? Sati is often translated as mindfulness. But that is, according to Seda Upandita, an incomplete rendering. Because this isn't an ordinary kind of mindfulness. In the West, of course, we use the word mindful a lot. Be mindful of your step. You know, be mindful of your checking account. Uh, just be mindful of your children. And, but it isn't that kind of mindfulness. That kind of mindfulness is good. It gets us through life. It's wonderful. It, there's nothing wrong with that kind of mindfulness. But sati is an extraordinary kind of mindfulness. It's not an ordinary kind of mindfulness. It has an extraordinary power because this sati brings us to the moment's experience, to this very moment that's fleeting. What can we learn from this fleeting moment? this moment that's here and then just dissolves. What can we learn from that? That's what sati is bringing us to, revealing the new understandings from that fleeting present moment. Sati means to remember. It signifies a presence of mind, a more uh, full rendering of sati could be observing power. So it's not remembering or observing the past. It's observing the present moment. This is what it's observing, not the past nor the future. And how is it observing the present moment? With pristine clarity, with nothing added to it, without an agenda, It's not being present in order to make the pain go away or not being present in order even to be a better human being. It has nothing to do with that. It's just being present simply for seeing, experiencing the present moment clearly. It doesn't add anything, embellish. It doesn't comment. 
It doesn't criticize. It doesn't compare. Oftentimes, mindfulness is likened to a mirror that simply reflects. So when you think about that, reflect on that, a mirror that's reflecting what's going on is not like sticking to what's going on. There's nothing in the mirror, a hand in the mirror, that reaches out and holds what it's reflecting. There's no hand in the mirror that reaches out and pushes away what it's reflecting. It simply reflects with objectivity, with clarity, without adding anything. Sati remembers to be present over and over and over again in a very strong and direct way. So when we practice um, with our own teachers, Steve and I have been talking about this, and Annie too, just uh, more recently, that when you go to practice, like in Burma, they give you these whole, this set of instructions to be present every moment. And they, they lay everything out, the breath, feelings, consciousness, mental objects, walking, um, eating, going to the bathroom, opening the door, lifting, putting on your shoes. You have to listen to a two-hour explanation of how to be present for every single moment. And this is what is expected of, of you when you practice there. So it's... It's sort of like, wow, can you do this? But one can. One can do that. And in a way, I've just been thinking that I'm wondering if we're coddling these grown-up, very intelligent Westerners, you know, by just kind of needing to give pep talks all the time and, you know, uh, needing to start slow and adding to it, and we can do it. Why can't we just be learn to be mindful more directly, hear the instructions, and be mindful every moment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.